to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Good, ooh, 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 that's so loud. Good, good morning. I'm glad I didn't scream at you all right off the bat. Uh, good morning. It's uh, the last day of April. Is it the last day of April? Tomorrow is. I so want April to be gone. <laughs> I tried to knock it off last week. Okay, it's April 29th, and uh, here we are. There's a, a quote that I heard on television yesterday on the news, and I can't get it out of my head. It keeps... When I was walking here from the bus stop, it popped in. When I was riding up in the elevator, which later refused to let me get off, the both Amy and I on different trips on the same elevator got stuck on the elevator here today. Just frightening elevators. Anyway, I thought it again coming up in the elevator, and I just thought of it a few minutes ago. It's a... It's like when a song gets stuck in your head. It's something the rabbi said. The rabbi in who's lost some of his fingers. He said of the person who shot him, He was wearing sunglasses. I couldn't see his soul. And he was talking, he said this while he was talking about what had happened. And to to think that in that split second when he was confronted by this killer, that that thought occurred to him, that he wanted to meet his eyes, and his eyes were shielded. He was wearing sunglasses, and I couldn't see his soul. And when I first heard him say it, I thought, what difference would that make? Did you think that if your eyes could have met his eyes, that anything different would have transpired? And I've also thought, you think he has a soul? But of course he does. He was wearing sunglasses. I couldn't see his soul. I remember now what made me think of it again as I was coming up in the elevator that wouldn't let me off. Right before I got on, a lovely man said to me, have a wonderful day. And I said, you too. And he said, have a wonderful, glittering, sparkly day. And I looked at him as I got onto the elevator and I said, I think that might be asking a little too much. 
And he said, it's what my four-year-old granddaughter said to me today. And I said, oh, how wonderful. And the doors closed, and I realized I was still wearing my sunglasses. And so this very, what I felt was wonderful exchange with this stranger, and I thought he didn't see my soul. He didn't see my eyes. <clears throat> I don't know where we're heading, but I do fear. Just the stories that came out of that, and thank God that this killer was a coward. Most of them are, but a true coward. I mean, he cut and ran. He, at the first, you know, he was rushed by what, two members who cut and ran. He never made it into the sanctuary where he could have wiped out God knows how many people with that gun. And apparently the gun jammed. I came upon another quote over the weekend and it struck me as so true that I pulled it out. It's by an author um, <coughs> who's been, I think, gone some time, uh, John Hersey. And he wrote, Events are less important than our responses to them. Events are less important than our responses to them. And when I read that, I thought, oh my God. 9-11. That was a horrific event. And we did not respond wisely. And it was our response as a nation that sowed more and more violence and trouble in our lives. I think. And our response to this growing plague of uh, domestic terrorism, I mean, let's call it what it is, please, if I have to be fearful going to my synagogue to worship, that is terrorism. If what the result is, is Jews are afraid to go to their synagogues, Muslims are afraid to go to their mosques, black people afraid to go to their churches, and they're all those Jews, those Muslims, and those black people all brought together with a common enemy. White nationalists, white supremacists, white haters, white 
murderers. Of all of the, the um, when we think about terrorism in this country, what do most Americans think of? <laughs> Brown people, right? Give me a break, guys. The terrorists in this country are homegrown and they're overwhelmingly white men. And their targets are brown people, black people, Jews, Muslims, anyone who is the other. And this isn't going away, it's getting worse. So there's each one of these, What I mean, stop and think about it. The guy who, who killed those hundreds of people at the mosques in New Zealand expressed admiration for the Norwegian who years earlier had blown away children at a summer camp by the hundreds. I'm not sure of the death toll there, but it was horrific. So the Australian white male terrorist who feels the white race is under assault showed his appreciation for the bravery of the Norwegian who also apparently felt in his manifestos that the white race was under assault. Why he mowed down a bunch of white people, I'm not sure, but I think they were... Um, liberals. It was uh, young, you know, do-gooders. An enemy, too. <coughs> and then the guy Saturday in California expressed admiration for the guy in New Zealand. So it's a global problem we're seeing. And it's not showing signs of abating. In fact, it's showing signs of increase. I saw a comment by uh, Barry Weiss the other day that was smart. She said, I'm going to paraphrase, in regard to one of the hates that drives these people. She said, anti-Semitism is, is, is a virus. It's like a virus. And it's always around, but when a society, when a culture is healthy and its immune system is healthy, its defensive structures are healthy, that virus of anti-Semitism does not gain a foothold. And that's where we have been in this country for a long time. a blink of an eye, but in my most of my lifetime, right? But in an unhealthy society whose immune system, whose natural defenses are not working, 
a body politic that is itself at risk. That virus can spread, gains a foothold and spreads. It's what happens even in very sophisticated and civilized societies. The virus doesn't care if it's in a poor country or a rich country. It just likes to gain access, entry into a somehow compromised country. A vulnerable body, as was Germany in the 30s, as we're seeing in a number of European countries right now, as we're seeing in our own country. Some other thoughts I had about it, I'm just telling you what was in my head as I tried to process these, this latest outrage. The, f the little child that was injured, thank God not severely, although who knows what goes on, you know, uh, her the psychological damage of being um, a victim of an event like that, that I cannot imagine. Her physical wounds not horrific. But that was a little girl, as I understand, whose family moved here, asylum seekers in a way, right? They came here from Israel. And I mean, I think Israel, why would they not feel safe in Israel? Well, they didn't feel safe in Israel because they were living in a small city called Starot. Starot. And Starot is a city very far on the tip. It's, it's south, very southern Israel. But it is extremely close to the Israeli border with Gaza. And so Starot and the people who lived there were uh, often victims of uh, a rocket attacks uh, being launched uh, from Gaza. By the way, uh, most of them, a result, the rocket attacks happened after Israel did what the Palestinians had been asking them to do. They gave them back Gaza. They said, okay, we'll pull out. You can have it. So they gave them Gaza back. It didn't make Israel safer because all of a sudden rockets started coming across. So this family leaves worried about their children comes to the United States, settles, I'm not clear where, somewhere in a California town, and their home is defaced with swastikas. 
This is a few years ago, I guess. <laughs> and they... They didn't feel safe again. I think they moved again, right? To this little town. And then they're in the synagogue and this guy comes in and he wounds two of them. The little girl, her uncle. The little girl's father says his children are saying to him, why are we here? They feel more vulnerable here. They're more afraid here. They've been greeted with hate. I really don't know. And then, I don't know if you're aware of the um, the cartoon <laughs> that the international edition of the New York Times printed, I believe on Friday. The international edition of the New York Times is not, I, I don't think it's, wide uh, wide circulation but it's out there and you get it in Europe if you want the New York Times and the New York Times here rarely if ever I can't even think of the last time I saw a cartoon in in the domestic New York Times but they published a cartoon in the international edition that when I saw it I was dumbstruck and I was not alone. It was a cartoon so reminiscent of what <coughs> was seen in uh, Nazi Germany that it was mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. It had every anti-Semitic trope you can think of. It had the Jew, happened to be Netanyahu, depicted as a little, little short-legged dog. The Jew is dog is a great, uh, you know, constant anti-Semitic meme. And the dog had Netanyahu's face. And you knew, in case you didn't get who he was, he was identified as a Jew because he, hanging from his collar was a Jewish star, Star of David. And it turns out he was a guide dog because he's walking this big, fat, blind Donald Trump who also in the cartoon is Jewified because they put a yarmulke, the cartoonist, on his head.
And people who have trouble understanding why Jews are quick to say that a lot of criticism of Zionism is really anti-Semitism is sort of shown here if you care to see it. If you were doing a cartoon and your problem was with Israel and Trump and you wanted to make sure people knew this was Netanyahu, you would put as an identifier the Israeli flag, right, on him. If your problem is Israel, you would put the Israeli flag on him. But that wasn't an Israeli flag. <laughs> that was the symbol of the Jewish people. That'd be me and every other Jew in the universe. And so what's happened, in, especially on the left, with anti-Zionism is it has flirted and so much with anti-Jewish tropes. Like they just can't quite know how to separate the Jew from the Israeli. And in fact, I think in many respects have stopped trying. So where does the anti-Zionism stop and the anti-Semitism start, or vice versa, or whatever? I don't know. The New York Times has apologized. The New York Times has taken it down. They've lost a whole bunch of subscribers, I'll tell you that. I don't know. I am so weary. And I'm so increasingly fearful. And I don't know what else to say. Um, I'm, again, sitting here as, again, a Jew in a era of rising Jew hate, speaking to you, and I'm going to hazard a pretty good guess, that the vast majority of you are not Jews. As a Jew, I have, you know, I think I'm pretty smart at reading people's reactions to things. I can tell that the non-Jewish world is sick and tired of Jews sounding like victims. It's hard, this is, this again is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to the left the most. The left loves nothing more than a victim, right? The left loves 
people who are beleaguered and rises to embrace them. And so after the Holocaust, when half of the Jewish population of the world was was destroyed, a blink of an eye ago, the world's Jew hate tamped down for a bit. Uh, it was really, even for the norm of being Jew hate, it was not a good time. And so from the ashes of the horror of the Holocaust, the world feeling sorry for these victimized people allowed these people to reestablish their homeland in Israel. And then much of the world stayed with them, understood Zionism for what it was, and as the Jews and in Israel were immediately attacked upon being granted their homeland, um, and managed to fight back, we came to their aid. All of the Arab nations around Israel attacked them immediately. So the Jew, fresh from the Holocaust, um, trying to protect this little sliver of land that the shame-faced world had given them, um, still maintained um, some, this is just my, this is me babbling. I mean, this is how I see it. The world still thought uh, that Israel was a good idea for these poor people. Here's where I think things changed. Israel was born in 1948. Not even 20 years later, 1967, in another attack, the Jews in Israel prevailed against these much bigger armies not only prevailed, but knocked them out in six days and grabbed some of the land defensively that they had been attacked from. And there were pictures of Israeli soldiers looking like these strong warriors when the picture of a Jew had never been that. The picture of a Jew is weak, victimized in the Holocaust. A Jewish warrior nation rising out of that Holocaust. created a lot of cognitive dissonance in the heads 
of the left, who began to turn their attention, which they hadn't really done much, to the people who had been on that land when Israel was granted its right to exist. So the left said, well, the Jews clearly in Israel here, they ain't victims anymore. Look at that. They're strong. They're the killers now. The world doesn't like strong Jews. The world likes dead Jews. The world likes weak Jews. Jews as strange sort of bearded supplicants and stuff with their books and their strange ways. Anti-Semitism is just a flat-out universal norm. It is. It is the virus that is always there. But the whispers about the Jews have always been about their insidious power. And so Israel was okay when it was a victim nation. And as soon as it won, and as soon as it started developing this reputation as a muscular nation, and I'm not talking politics here, Israeli politics. I'm not talking Benjamin F. and not Netanyahu, who I despise. But he has helped, and one of the reasons I despise him, he and his policies have helped sow the seeds again, make the virus stronger because it's easier to hate the Jews again because of the way Israel under Netanyahu has positioned himself and that country. I don't know. I'm no scholar of any of this. I'm just a one Jew living my life in the country that has been more welcoming to Jewish people than any I'm aware of. This has been the promise. The United States has been the promised land for Jews like me. But it looks like that ain't necessarily going to last. And history would tell me that it will not. Here's another thing I think. It is hard to see Jews as victims in this country. So again, Jews say, oh gosh, someone's happening. Enough already, right? Most people think, what are you talking about? You Jews... You own stuff, you're living large, you're this, that, and the other thing, you're blah, 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 right? Jews are white, mostly. And so Jews can pass pretty readily. 
if they choose to. And um, Jews have had, as I said, just incredible success here in this country in every way. And so to think of Jews as some American Jews as a minority seems silly or as a marginalized group. Another reason the left doesn't recognize anti-Semitism much. Come on, the Jews are, are you kidding me? Look at them. They own stuff. They run stuff. They're blah, blah. <clears throat> But ultimately, they're one of the tiniest minorities there is. And when they achieve success and when they achieve assimilation, as they have here, as they had in Germany, as they had in Spain in the 1400s and 1300s and 1400s before, I mean, they were as successful as American Jews. And then all of a sudden, there was a political change. Scapegoat was needed. Somebody to point a finger at. The Jews, always the Jew, the Jews expelled from Spain. I met a man in Israel last time I was there who had lived in the Golan, Galilee, very much close to where Jesus uh, came from. And I asked him how long his family had been there. And I was blown away by the answer. His answer was 1492. I said, are you kidding? So you're, you're a Sephardic Jew. That's a Spanish, somewhat Spanish Jew. You're a Sephardic Jew whose family came directly back to Israel when you were, they were, exp they came right here. So that's a Israeli who has been on that land For what? 500 years. That blew me away. I'm just babbling. I'm... If Muslims and Jews don't see that they are... You know, you always think, if we were attacked by, you know, Martians, it would finally pull the world together, right? Because we'd see we're all in this together. There is the enemy. We have a common enemy. I am waiting for blacks and Jews and brown people and Muslims to see that we have this common enemy now and we need to get together. That's the only positive I see here. Barbara sent me a quote from Hannah Arendt in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. And um, she, by the way, was a Jewish intellectual and uh, European Jew who survived 
who had a, I think a very, you know, was very torn about Zionism, as many Jews were thinking, I mean, I think one of the thoughts about Zionism is how smart is it for us to all be in one little place? Because if somebody wants to take us out again, why should we make it easy for them by all gathering in one place? I mean, even strategically. Forget about the biblical stuff. That this land is our land, right? Hannah Arendt in her book, 1951 book, the Origins of Totalitarianism said this, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule, okay, so who is, okay, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, the distinction between true and false no longer exists. Well, that, if Hannah was right about that, we're in big trouble because we now know we have a good 40% of our nation for whom fact or fiction doesn't, doesn't matter, who are willing to listen to lies and swallow them whole, who feel comfortable under autocratic, totalitarian, white nationalist hate spewing presidents. So if that is what is needed for a fascist state, a totalitarian state to arise, we're flirting with real danger in this country. And again, let's remember, Charlottesville, they were not chanting about Robert E. Lee. They were chanting about Jews. And the president refusing still to acknowledge that. The Jews will not replace us. And I had told you at the time, I didn't even understand what the hell that meant this naive Jew. I ain't as naive now. I get it now. I understand what these white nationalists are afraid of. They're afraid of Jews because they think Jews control the whole friggin' world and we Jews are the ones who are bringing brown people and black people and other non-white people into these countries, European countries, to take them over. I didn't understand the, the chant, Jews will not replace us. I thought, how there are next to no Jews in the whole world. How are we supposed to replace you white people? Are you kidding me? That's not what they meant. The Jews will not bring these brown hordes in to replace us. The killer in Squirrel Hill, Tree of Life. Went after Tree of Life because Tree of Life was involved in a charitable nonprofit organization that helped refugees coming in. And in that guy's head, there it was. There are those Jews, and they're bringing these brown people in. I'm going to go take them out. 
hate crimes in America the first year Donald Trump is president. Up 17%. Of the religious bias crimes, almost 60% were against Jewish people or organizations. 20% anti-Muslim. The, uh, I don't know, we're living in some frightening times, guys. That's all I can say. Um, Milton writes, I disagree with your premise. The Six-Day War and the subsequent victory may have hastened anti-Semitism, but with or without that conflict, the world was going to return to the status quo of its disdain toward Jews. Well, that is true. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm saying I think it hastened it. The world did not like the idea of this militarized, a militarized Jew. They liked the idea of the Jews that were stripped and marched into crematoria. That's the Jew they could like. That's the Jew they had a measure of empathy for. But a Jew like this, uh-uh. Milton writes, just as there was a brief period after America's Civil War in which blacks were permitted to flourish and grow, only for that 30-year period, and then it ended, and the status quo returned, America's inherent hatred and fear, I'm going to add, Milton, of blacks. Jim Crow is what we call that. 100 years of horrific terrorism. Jim Crow was domestic terrorism. Let us also remember that Hitler's own people writing up their new constitution and writing their racial laws went to America, went to the United States, to see how we had done it in Jim Crow America. How you tell a people, you're, yeah, you're free, and then create a situation in which they are actually still enslaved. Hitler and his folks had great admiration for America's ability to cook the law books as they did to keep black people in line. And America's never dealt with that. 
We don't deal with that. We still don't deal with that. Yap, 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 yap. And I heard somebody saying, you know, I'm sick of the oppression Olympics. In other words, if Jews start saying, hey, hey, all our lives we've been, yeah, we've been thrown out here, thrown out there, killed, 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 killed. Half our holidays are, are really, it's true, half our holidays are celebrating when we somehow escape death again. That's what Jewish holidays are. And to hear Jews in America complain just seems, dis it, it, it seems dissonant. To hear black people in America complain seems, uh-huh, you got some really serious standing here. But if you think about the history of both peoples, Jews and blacks, good God in heaven, And Milton has it right. And the hatred never goes away. It only quietly simmers until some event or series of events thrusts open the door for it to rear its ugliness once again. Well, I'm afraid that door has opened. And as I said, Jews, Muslims, blacks, browns are not safe. Are not as safe as they were the day before the door opened. And if they don't see that as common cause and stop, com stop comparing grievance and see that it's this common enemy. And I want to point this out. When we clearly have this huge, huge issue of domestic terror going on, I don't know if people are aware that there was a specific group of intelligence analysts at the Department of Homeland Security whose job it was was to keep track of domestic terrorism. Believe me, it wasn't as many people as were keeping track of Muslims all over the place. But the Trump administration has essentially disbanded that group. It doesn't exist anymore. This happened, um, started happening last year and pretty much finished off um, uh, months ago. Uh, numerous current and former Department of Homeland Security officials say the development is extremely concerning as the threat of homegrown terrorism is actually, of course, growing mostly because, not mostly because, because of white supremacist terrorism. 
So the number of people watching, compiling stuff, alerting police departments to people and things and stuff has absolutely dropped significantly. Um, one former intelligence official said it is especially problematic given the growth in right-wing extremism and domestic terrorism. And um, I want to read you what the Los Angeles County Sheriff's, uh, one of the people there that was responsible for keeping an eye in L.A. on this kind of stuff. His name is Sergeant Mike Abdeen. And he said, our office used to receive significant amounts of material from this group at Homeland Security. But the communications has, have just dried up. For the last six months, there's been almost nothing. The last six months, as white nationalism and these terrorists continue to show themselves. It's been very quiet lately, Avdeen says. It's changed with this new administration. It doesn't seem to be as robust, as active, as important. It is important. There were roundtable meetings in the past. There was more activity, more training, more seminars. It's all gone away. You can't be afraid to connect dots here. We have a totalitarian wannabe as President of the United States who is thumbing his nose at all of our constitutional norms, our civic norms, all of it, who is himself the chief spreader of hate, division, distrust, Islamophobia, racism, you name it, he's doing a hell of a job. And interesting that under his administration, he actually eviscerates the intelligence analysts in our supposed Department of Homeland Security who were charged to be sure that the homeland was secure from domestic terror. What do you think's going on? Okay, that's it. I didn't know I was going to talk about that for so long. I'm sorry. If it offended you. The good news this weekend. The NRA is imploding. There's something we can all agree upon. How wonderful is it to see that despicable organization. By the way, an organization that the New York State Attorney General has called 
a criminal enterprise. And now she, and let me just say, a black woman, she is going after them. She's going after them for an investigation focused on transactions between the NRA and its board members. In other words, this was the thing Ollie North was squawking about. Wayne LaPierre, the chief executive, Wayne LaPierre has been just taken tons of money for personal purposes. Uh, Ollie was especially upset about the fact that he spent something like a quarter of a million dollars on his clothes that the NRA paid for. Um, and the NRA board was made aware of this, and they said, well, that's okay. He, uh, he makes a lot of public appearances, so, you know, you need about, it was, I think it's $275,000 for suits. She's looking into that. She's looking into unauthorized political activity. Duh. You see, they're a nonprofit. You believe that? Yeah, they're a nonprofit. And nonprofits are not supposed to engage in political activity. I ask you, do you think of the NRA as a political operation? How hasn't somebody gone after them before? She's able to do it because the NRA was founded in New York State and remains registered in the state. So the New York Attorney General has the, has the right to go after him. So... They're back on their heels. And you know who I'm going to credit for really starting the push? I'm, those kids, those high school students from Parkland. And all the others that have done such hard work over the years. But man, that pendulum is definitely starting to swing. So, and this, um, Kansas, not Kansas. Oh, this, you know, it is. One something I wanted to tell you about Kansas because this blew me away. I mean, when you think of a state, there was that book, What's Wrong with Kansas, right, or something about how why do these, you know, white uh barely making it uh Americans in the Midlands uh fall for Republicans who do nothing but screw them left right and center but they fall for their well their scare tactics put it that way I was blown away to see that the Kansas Supreme Court which I would assume would be a pretty conservative court Six to one ruled that the anti-abortion law 
you know, these anti-abortion bills are happening left, right, and, and, and center. There have been literally hundreds of them introduced all over the country. Um, but the Kansas Supreme Court turned to the Kansas Constitution and said this, The Kansas Constitution's Bill of Rights grants, here's a quote, a natural right of personal autonomy. And that includes the right to control one's own body. So apparently there is a clause in that everybody inherently has a right of personal autonomy. That's true freedom. And the Kansas court said, well, if that is the case, then you cannot legislate what a woman can do. It's her body. I found that beyond belief. So, of course, the anti-abortion crowd, they don't, I mean, you know, they're like, uh, you know, like cockroaches. You cannot kill these people. They keep coming back and coming back and coming back. That was a little harsh. I'm sorry. I know some of them are very believe that they're on the right side. But they are immediately going to go after the Kansas Constitution now. And given that the Kansas legislature is, I'm sure, extremely conservative, they're going to, I guess, get out of the Constitution that people have uh, autonomy, a natural right of personal autonomy, which I believe is the, the uh, wording. And again, as uh, speaking as I did about how, why do these people fall for the Republicans all the time? It's mind-boggling. And I saw another uh, statistic the other day. More than one million Americans have lost their health insurance since Donald Trump became president. A million people who had gotten insurance, some of them for the first time in their lives, have lost it again. Almost all of them live in Republican-controlled states where legislation was enacted that took Medicaid coverage away from <coughs> people who had before been deemed uh, to be proper recipients of that aid. Republicans hurt people. They hurt the little people. They only care about the wealthy, who they serve like lap dogs. All right. Well, that's it for me. I'm done. I'll see you tomorrow, okay? Have a good day. Have a sparkly day. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com.
The opinions expressed on Lynn Collin Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.